0: If I said to you, you can get physically healthier through a program of diet and exercise. You can hire a personal trainer to help guide you. You can do classes with others so you have a group experience. Nobody would think that's strange. In fact, they would think, well, of course, that's obvious. But when it comes to mental health, we often think that has to be some kind of mysterious process that just drops from the heavens and a lot of times we think, well, other people, they, they could be happy, but not me. It's not attainable, but it is. And in fact, don't tell the insurance companies. But absolutely, learning to be happy should be a core principle of any long-term psychotherapy. When I say happy, I'm not talking about the kind of super elevated mood we'd have if we just hit the lottery or a team won the world championship. I'm talking about a sustained, everyday, positive perspective, outlook, and affect that is core to who we are and provides the foundation for taking on whatever emotional and intellectual experiences follow. It would be like reporting a consistent mood of eight on a scale of 10 each week, day in, day out, sometimes a bit higher, sometimes a bit lower, but stable and consistent over time. Welcome to today's episode, episode eight, How to Be Happy. I'm Andrew Nargawala from Advanced Psychotherapy and Healing Associates in Creskill, New Jersey. And I'll be discussing today how we work on helping our clients get happy and stay that way. To begin with, it's not a blinding insight or sudden revelation that creates the kind of core happiness that we're talking about. It's a process and a practice. It is like developing that plan of exercise and eating properly. It's work and it happens over time. When you start to see and feel the results, it becomes glorious work, welcome work. Like when you get off that couch and you, you run and you feel that runner's high and you want to feel that again and you start to see the results, your mood is improved by your physical health, well, it goes the other way too. It's the product of effort and planning, but that also means it's something that can be broken down into parts, into a plan that anyone can do. You don't have to wait around for change to happen to you. You can take the reins and initiate it for yourself. So let me start by breaking down some of the components of what we work on. Number one, making peace with the past. So many people are walking around with trauma, wounding, distorted ideas and thinking. For example, taking responsibility for things they could not control. Codependency, which some people confuse with being dependent on someone, is actually a term that connotes our taking responsibility for the behavior and mood of others. The term's often used in in relationship work, and it comes from, it originated in addiction work. For example, someone believing he or she was responsible for the addiction of another person, as if there were some magic words that could have turned around the person if only we knew what they were. Or parents taking responsibility for their children well into adulthood, and allowing their kids to blame them that things haven't turned out better for them. The book, Codependency No More, is a good introduction to this distorted way of thinking. And to some degree, I think therapists have to take responsibility too, that for so long, the influence of analytic work uh, affected us, psychodynamic work is the term, that therapists use when they examine the past very carefully and the roots of what has happened to someone. And it's wonderful work. It's necessary work, but it's incomplete. We, along with our clients, should be moving forward and saying, we can learn from the past. We have to learn from the past. But we should be working towards mindfulness, which puts the past in its right place. Something to learn from, but not be bound by. So it's a starting point. Learning about your past, understanding it, is certainly a good place to start with your therapist. Then second, connecting or reconnecting with a professional and personal support system. You cannot go this alone. It's very, very difficult. Happiness lies in diversification, not putting all your eggs in one basket, or one person, or one accomplishment, or one job, or one child. The professional support system can consist of anyone who helps you with treatment. Therapy is what you do once or twice a week in the office. Treatment is the totality of all the healthy things you are doing for yourself. And that can include a therapist, a psychiatrist, a personal trainer to work on the physical aspect, a religious or spiritual guide, and so forth. In addition, it's time to surround yourself with positive, supportive people and activities. Uh, we we talked in the episode, uh, The Poisoned Well, that if the people you are surrounding yourself with are negative and hurtful, and again, we talked about that distinction that Emotional abuse can be just as bad and hurtful as physical abuse. Many people report taking those scars well into adulthood. And so you need a positive support system, not people who will just give you happy talk all the time, but people who, when they do make criticisms, they're constructive criticisms. They're loving and respectful criticisms, not tearing you down. So you need to reconnect with that support system. It happens in relationships where people say, well, I don't have my own friends anymore. We have our mutual friends as a couple. But when things go wrong, there's no one to turn to for support because you've let those relationships go. It's very important to maintain our own friendships and our own activities and our own relationships in any marriage or in any um, uh, long-term relationship it's very healthy sometimes people say well it shouldn't we be enough for each other and the answer is no you need that circle of friends Uh, you have to schedule time for yourself it is amazing how many people will schedule time for their children they will take on any kind of Uh, work responsibilities, and I can say as a recovering workaholic, I have been extremely guilty of this in the past and try to regulate that now in my present and future. Uh, And, you know, this time for yourself may be to reconnect uh, with nature one day or your creative self uh, or your friends, but you have to schedule it. And you say, why schedule it? That sounds so artificial. Well, we live in the modern world, and there's so many demands on our time that if we don't make a concrete effort to say, no, I will take time for myself, nothing will interrupt it, uh, then it doesn't happen. We know that. So, uh, and and it has to be unstructured time. In other words, um, you say to yourself there's no other point to this than just self-care I don't you know sometimes people try to combine it well maybe I could you know uh, do these chores and uh, do this no you say when you start especially you want to just dedicate that time to good self-care and to focusing on yourself and a lot of times people say well that's selfish no it's not Uh, Selfishness is turning away from people and turning away from life. When you exercise self-care, it makes you more able to be present with others, to be loving. Uh, It's putting gas back in the tank. And again, no one would think it's strange if I said, well, you have to eat properly, you have to sleep properly, you have to take care of yourself physically. You say, well, of course. But when you say, well, you need mental health time too, There is that stigma in our culture that says, well, well, that's not doing anything. That's not productive, but it is. Third, have your physical health checked out, and that includes ruling out depression and anxiety that may have a biological basis and may need to be treated with medication. I understand people's aversion to considering medication, but it can be a godsend if you have a biological predisposition to depression, anxiety, bipolar, severe ADD, and so forth. Uh, You know, we've talked about this diet and exercise routine. We're not talking about some crazy, you know, all pineapple diet or working out till exhaustion, but something that fits in with your life and enhances it. I've even said to clients sometimes who come exhausted to session because they've they've been overdoing their exercise and uh they're not even present in the session i've said you can't do that uh you have to find something that works for you that you're going to stick to because it's not overdoing it and it's not underdoing it you try to find that that buddhist middle path even with uh, exercise plus if you have to regularly numb your feelings with alcohol or weed or anything that prevents you from experiencing life in a direct way. You're going to have a tough time being present and mindful, much less happy. There are people who can take an occasional drink or smoke a joint and not limit themselves with their experiences of others. But as a culture, we put a lot of pressure on people to use. That old expression, I wouldn't trust anyone who doesn't drink, is just a rationalization for self-medication. If you can't face substantial portions of your life without some kind of emotional screen, then you're passing from casual use to self-medicating. Proper use of medication, such as antidepressants, makes you feel more like your healthy self, allows you to be more engaged with life and others, not high or numbed out. Abusing legal or illegal substances helps you hide from who you truly are, and from the people and relationships in your life. When you're happy, you don't want anything to mediate your joy. You treasure being fully present. You're aware of the problems as well, but with new perspective and inner and outer resources. Number four, take yourself off the external wheel of judgment and learn to look inward. Our culture supports external reward to the point that people will do just about anything to achieve it, including losing themselves. There was that terrible, very tragic story recently about a young woman in Massachusetts uh, who was a 17-year-old high school junior, straight-A student, class officer, robotics whiz, who uh, jumped off a highway overpass uh, in Grafton, Massachusetts, and was killed. And one thing that's tragic and, and very poignant was that she had this um, notebook that she wrote in. And it was 200 pages, described as 200 pages of self-loathing and despair. Uh, to quote from it, you were broken, you were a burden, you were lazy, you are a failure. Now on the outside, this young woman presented very well. Uh, her parents said she seemed self-motivated, she uh, did these activities willingly, she allegedly wasn't pressured, and I believe this because I see kids in the practice all the time now whose parents aren't even pushing them particularly hard. But the kids have internalized the pressure of the culture. So from an early age, sometimes starting in elementary school or middle school, they start to believe that if they don't get into the right school, if they don't achieve externally everything that the culture tells them they need to do, that their lives are worthless and we see with this parenting scandal uh, that's been in the news where parents will go to all sorts of uh, lengths, legal and illegal, to get their kids into school, even though some of these kids don't seem to have much interest in education, but it's a status external symbol that the parents feel they need, the kids feel they need sometimes. Uh, so when you tie yourself to that wheel, when you say, well, the externals mean everything. I've had adults tell me in session that, of course, they believe that they're judged by their income and how big a house. And I mean, that's just the way the world works, Andrew. That's just how we have to be. Well, no, we can absolutely celebrate external achievement, but not make it the basis of who we are. In other words, if, if you want to celebrate, you know, I will celebrate with you what you can achieve in life. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing, but I will never confuse it, and you should never confuse it with who you are, the basic core components. The things that we love about people should not depend on, well, what was your SAT score, or what school did you go to, or how much money do you make, then we're on a roller coaster where things can go up or down. It's like putting all your money into one stock and then living and dying on the performance of that stock. You say, no, I have to diversify. I have to have many sources of support and of joy and not look to one thing to make me happy because it's not going to work. And that includes children. I've had parents say, I live in absolute fear when my kids leave home. I don't know what I'm going to do, how I'm going to define myself. what, Because they've not spent any time taking care of themselves and developing themselves. They focused everything on the kids, and that's not healthy. And it may seem like the more time you put in, the more devoted you are. But it's a good recipe for burnout actually. Uh, so when we, when we think about the, the young woman who, who recently died, uh, she left a list of things that she had achieved. And the checklist said, uh, what will get me into MIT? Valedictorian, first robotics captain, 100 plus hour service award model UN, attend both conferences, win. And what the parents didn't notice, and I don't blame them, but you know, they said, well, we didn't see any signs. That should have been a sign. When someone's checklist for success is all externals and winning and being perfect, uh, this kind of black and white thinking we're going to talk about, then there's no balance, there's no peace, and there's definitely no happiness. There, what should have been on that list in addition, and maybe subtract some of these things, uh, would be spending one-on-one time with friends, doing non-competitive activities that don't depend on winning but are creative. Um, things like that that take someone away from that wheel. Of external expectation and allows them to develop who they are, especially at 17. We're asking kids to have adult goals. You know, I'm old enough to remember a time when, you know, college was seen as something where you learn to discover yourself, you learn the process of self discovery, self actualization. You don't show up there knowing everything about what your future should be. You show up saying, I'm here to learn what's possible for me in the future. But we've put the pressure on kids and then, of course, on adults too, because the adults just internalize this, that if they're not perfect, they're not good. And if you don't uh, succeed in the external world, then you're a failure. Your internal qualities don't matter. They don't fit on a resume. Nobody cares about that. At the end of the notebook uh, that this young woman wrote, she said, quote, I don't want this notebook to end. I love it more than myself. I need a place where there's no need for me to be perfect. And that's the kind of pressure and limited world that we're talking about here. That um, whether you're an adult or a child, when you feel profoundly lost, as she says, When you're disconnected from yourself and others, then you know that you're on that terrible wheel of judgment. Uh, We can't base our self-esteem and self-perception on these kind of things because we will never have peace. We've all seen people that seem to have everything, except they have no peace. They're constantly stressed. They're constantly unhappy. Or if they don't show the signs, as apparently this girl didn't, we can notice and see when whatever they seem to judge themselves by and whatever they seem to constantly be talking about is about externals. And we can see that passed on sometimes where adults will even bring their adult parents in and uh, you know talk about how they learned this from their parents. And again, I think parenting is an incredibly difficult job. I'm not saying that you know, people are doing this with any kind of bad intention because as we're gonna talk about in a little while, our culture does value these distorted ideas and it's very tough to, to buck that, to go against that. So you need to decide your own values and what is truly important in your life And actually act accordingly. You set the standard. And a lot of times you say, well, those can go together. I want to do well in school, etc. I want to do well at my job. That's fine. But you prioritize the support system and the creative things in your life and the interactions with people. And as I said, I've been terribly guilty of this too. So, you know, I'm not saying this from a place of judgment, I'm saying this from a place of experience. Especially if you love your work, because then there's always a good excuse. You know, work and children are the greatest excuses, right? Oh, I have to do this for the kids, or I have to work. And when I've been called out about it, it's been helpful to me, uh, by friends and colleagues who said, you know, you don't have to take every client and you don't have to do you know, every activity. You can do things that are creative. I find doing the podcast creative. I really do. Uh, I don't do it for any other reason than I hope it connects with people. Uh, people who may not have any experience of therapy, other therapists, any, anyone along that range. And, um, We all can be creative. We don't have to be artists to be creative. Uh, We we can show that in cooking. We can show that in uh, hiking. We can show that in photography. There's so many things we can do for ourselves that connect us back to what's healthy in, in us. Number five, break with black and white thinking. This is not a new or modern concept, really. Uh, Ovid, Shakespeare, they knew and portrayed that life exists as a duality and a multiplicity, a many-sidedness of meanings and interactions. Perfectionist thinking, as we saw with the young woman in Massachusetts, allows for only two options, pass or fail. And that's, you know, there's good over here and there's evil over here, And never the twain shall meet. Well, actually, it's more like the blossom and the thorns. We exist on a spectrum. We're composed of many conflicting ideas and experiences. And so does everyone else. You know, when we look for perfection in others and we idealize people, that's a kind of black and white thinking, too. We can do some things well and some things not so well. It's okay. In Hamlet, he has to learn that frailty's name is not woman, but human, which includes him and the whole rotten state of Denmark. And he's not really an avenging angel sent by pristine heaven. He's a mixed up human who takes the advice of a ghost from impure purgatory. When we fail to acknowledge the humanity in ourselves and in others, When we believe we have to be perfect before we can be happy, we only torture ourselves and delay knowing who we truly are and delay knowing that happiness is something we can embrace now. Brene Brown talks about this very effectively in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. She has a whole chapter on this idea of, you know, I can be happy when. You know, I can be happy when I get that job, I can be happy when I graduate uh, that college. And it, it it's a lie, it's an attractive lie. You can be happy at any point, uh, you can take charge of that project, uh, you don't have to wait until you have the right marriage or the right job or uh, you know, after you've helped enough people, uh, you say, no, you, you can do, you can help yourself right now, and you, you need to, and you deserve that. We're often so focused on helping others that we don't help ourselves. Uh, next category, do things with meaning, but more importantly, find meaning in who you are and in being present. Viktor Frankl writes about people finding meaning even in the death camps of the Holocaust and if you if you take that in you say well even in such dire circumstances someone can still find meaning not necessarily in what's going on around them because what's going on around them is evil and crazy but In connecting with others and themselves in a simple way in a very core way uh, they can find connection and if we only do good works to achieve meaning you again get trapped in that cycle of externals that yes it's wonderful to achieve things it's wonderful to help others but we also have to say that being present with yourself and with others, as Buddhism teaches, is the greatest gift you can give yourself and the people in your life. We've all seen people who have so much, who are so talented and so full of life, but who have no peace, no joy, no healthy sense of self. Some say the Buddha was the first psychotherapist. To learn to be mindful is a big part of the work of therapy and self-discovery. And the way mindfulness is taught in a trendy way today is not always helpful. Uh, but when we're talking about what it really is, we learn that we can't change the past. We can only learn from it and move forward. We can't control the future. We can prepare ourselves, but we don't control it. All we ever really have is this moment. And if we can't be fully present, we don't even have that. When we have a healthy, not a cold attachment, but a healthy sense of what's going on around us, we don't take things so personally. We can actually join in that moment, whether in solitude or with someone else. Meditation can be the precursor to mindfulness, but it's really about developing a new perspective that comes from gratitude for this moment and for this hope and for this possibility. We see so much in our culture that comes from a perspective of entitlement, the parents who weren't really trying to get their kids an educational opportunity but rather a piece of paper, an image, that shorthand for external success. If we can look around us, understand what's happening, see the good and the bad, not pretend it's not there, but also not take full responsibility for it, to understand that, you know, we we have some responsibility and we want to take that, but we cannot say that everything that goes on is our responsibility. We have to see others as having agency too then we start to feel mindful. We start to realize that we can have peace and we can have perspective even when things are very distorted around us and very out of control. The next one is to understand how unhealthy our culture is and how it works against peace and joy. Advertising is largely based on fear and absence. You don't have this. You really need that. And in our culture, in American culture, I know we have listeners overseas, which I'm I'm thrilled at, but in American culture, we don't provide the basics such as true Medicare for all health insurance, true access to care, and affordable and available child care, and free tuition for college. And stipends for raising children, and mandated vacation time, all of which are available in any other developed nation. It's not some pipe dream. It exists when my German relatives come and visit. They're often amazed at the dilapidated infrastructure, at the they can't understand a healthcare system like we have that is based on profit and not based on caring for our citizens. So, you know, a lot of times people blame themselves, and the culture reinforces that. Well, you just weren't good enough. You didn't want it enough. You didn't try hard enough, when really there's so much that is stacked against very loving and good people, I see it every day, who are working two and three jobs, who are Struggling just for the necessities and have to decide about rationing their own care. We heard those horrible, heartrending stories of people in our culture now having to ration their own insulin because the cost went from almost nothing and just skyrocketed because somebody could make a profit off that. Uh, to be enlightened. And self-actualized is to understand one's own suffering and the suffering of others, and try to br- to bring relief to that suffering on the micro and macro levels. Uh, you know, when when we simply ignore the macro level, the bigger level, and say, "Well, that's just how things are," and uh, somehow we don't. Achieve, or if the people next door don't achieve, they were just lazy, or you know, like the girl writing in her diary how she felt she could not measure up. Well, it's a lie that we're told to tell ourselves. Yes, there are some people you can always find that try to take advantage of the system and don't live to their full potential, but most people are struggling and trying and some of the people that are taking advantage are at the top of the chain, they are making out like bandits. When you hear that the economy is doing better, they're the people that are being thought of because it's never been a better time to be super wealthy, right? Uh, you, you have every break, every advantage, and if you, if you uh, can't get those advantages, well, you try to purchase them and you try to uh, influence how things are gonna go and for us to have real peace is to have empathy is to imagine what it's really like for people who are suffering as we are uh, when I hear billionaires say oh we can't afford that national health insurance so that everyone has access to care I just think of what kind of goal that that takes in the richest country on the planet, where we never question the need for war or tax cuts. Uh, As someone said recently, why is it only when we try to help people that all of a sudden the issue of uh, money is brought up? And this is a bipartisan effort, by the way, before you think I'm taking sides, both sides, both major parties are guilty of this and do not do the maximum that they can do for the people. So connecting politically, and I don't mean a particular party or a particular candidate, but looking at these core issues like child care and health care and the crippling burden of student debt that we put on young people and wonder why they're stressed, and then they don't have insurance so they can't come get help. We know more about how to help people in the mental health field than we've ever known before. There's so many things we can do, but so many times people don't have real access. I've seen people uh, who have insurance and have $10,000. I I once said someone had $13,000 deductible. Uh, You know, that's a joke. That's cruel to say that someone has insurance, but would have to lay out that amount of money. Uh, Most people cannot afford that. Most people can't afford even a $400 debt emergency in our culture. That would be something they would have to borrow the money or, or find some other way. That's disgraceful. And when we blame ourselves and say well, you know, I would be succeeding if it just weren't for all these factors. Yes, sometimes, you know, we do have to take some level of personal responsibility, but we also have to understand the kind of pressure that this culture puts on people. And I believe we have to work to change that in whatever way we can. On the local level, on the national level, we have to say that in the richest country on the planet, People should have real access, not this. You know, well, you have access, like I have access to buy a Rolls Royce. I can walk into the showroom. That's about as far as I'm going to get. But I have access. Well, that's like saying you have access to healthcare when you can't afford it, and or you have healthcare, but it's woefully incomplete, uh, and you have huge deductibles, co-pays. That's not real help. And you, you're afraid to change your job because you'll lose your benefits. In every other advanced culture, you, you don't have to worry about switching jobs or starting a business because all those benefits, including child care, including tuition, they're covered and they're not a cost for the business either, which encourages businesses to flourish. So this aspect of politics is important and it can also be something meaningful. When you say, you know, I can't change the whole system, but I can play a part in changing it, I can have some influence. That's often a source of meaning in our lives. Next category is learning to love yourself unconditionally. It's what we want for our loved ones, and what we must work on and attain ourselves. It starts with clearing away the cognitive distortions, the thinking errors we've collected and beat ourselves up with, such as we aren't good enough, everyone else is better than us. It then involves having faith in our own essential worth. It doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want and justify it. That's narcissism, a a hollow, shallow self-love that is based on image, not substance. You have to put your name on everything, like a certain politician I won't name. But that's narcissism. Uh, When we believe to our core that we're worth something in a healthy way, then we're not thinking we're better or worse than anyone else. We're thinking we're equal partners in this experience of life. When we look at it that way, we can make healthy decisions and live mindfully in the present. In the Leaving Neverland documentary, one of the parents says at one point that they believed themselves to be nobodies, while Michael Jackson was a star, a person above them, because of his external accomplishments. And they allowed their children to be at risk. These seem like loving parents who got caught up in the idea that somehow, because he was rich and famous, he could mean no harm to them. And we know, of course, that was not true. When we lie to ourselves or allow others to lie to us that we aren't good enough as we are, that we can't love ourselves or allow, uh, uh, or or uh, we have to achieve this or that, and then we can love ourselves. We can't be happy or healthy Uh, until we achieve certain things, then we can't see the worth of others as well. When we love ourselves in this healthy way, we want others to be happy. We're not jealous. We're not envious. We're saying, I want people to experience that same joy. We can maintain a stable, healthy, supple, vibrant core, regardless of the good or bad things that are happening around us. We can't control those good or bad things, but we can decide how we want to face it. That doesn't mean that there aren't events that can lay us low or hurt us deeply. As we said, there is great suffering in the world, but we understand them as externals and not part of who we are. Uh, These books like The Secret are very dangerous when they say that, well, if you just thought more positively about everything, and you just, um, you know, pretended there was no dark side, then everything would be fine. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about this kind of artificial happy talk. We're talking about a balance, a Buddhist middle path, psychotherapy middle path that says we'll take responsibility for our actions and what we do to others how we hurt ourselves and how we hurt others but we also will understand that our core self cannot be based on what you know any one individual event you can do something terrible but you can if you're genuine in wanting to change and to stop the hurting of others and ourselves that then you can be happy and you can have that backstop, that, that uh, supple core that says, you know, events still will hurt, things still will go bad, but I'm not going to let it be a judgment on myself. I love myself unconditionally, and I want to, because I do, to act better, to act with empathy, to love others, to help others. That is the kind of balance that we want for others. We see it in our our children and our loved ones and our friends and the people we care about. When they say to us, well, you know, I've done this or that, or I'm no good, we say, well, that's not who you are. That is something you have to take responsibility for and answer for that event, but it's not determining of your identity. You still can be a good and loving person if you are devoted to real change. And a lot of times people also take things personally when the criticism would be directed at anyone in that position, that people have their own issues and that's why they take it out on us. But we automatically think, well, they must be right. I mean, why would someone so close to me hurt me? Well, because as we said with Hamlet, Uh, frailty's name is human. They have their own issues that may have nothing to do with you, but it gets taken out on you. We have to learn to recognize that. Developing that core self takes time and work, but it is the greatest work and the most rewarding, and it's a life's work that anyone can take on. And therapy, it's not the only way to achieve that. For centuries, people have been doing that on their own and and in groups of people or with spiritual support, religious support. All we're saying that therapy offers a path and, and a guide that you then can take and make into treatment. As we said, treatment is any healthy thing you do, not just coming to therapy. You have to have that life change. If the life doesn't change, the treatment is not working. So I invite you to seek that help or if you're in that help now I applaud you and and hope that you'll continue that is the foundation that work is the foundation of being happy I hope this provides an an overview I know it's even with a long podcast episode today there's no way we can cover everything but I so welcome your questions, your comments, your suggestions, including for future topics. I'm so gratified for the feedback and that people have found this helpful. Uh, so thank you so much for taking this time to be with me, and I look forward to discussing more in future episodes. Thanks.